How many of you are familiar with the Paul Harvey show? Do you remember that? I don't know when he stopped recording his shows. Uh, and uh, does anybody know? I, I know, well, yeah, I think he may have stopped sometime before that. I can't tell you. I grew up listening to Paul Harvey. My mom loved listening to Paul Harvey. We would listen in the car all the time. But I can't tell you if those were recorded and reruns or what. I really don't know. But Paul Harvey was great. If you don't know who he, he is, he would do special interest stories, um, sometimes stories of historical significance, and they were always fascinating. And he would come on and give kind of an overview of a particular issue or an event in history or a person. And, and you would sit there and listen to it and think, wow, that's, that's really neat. It's very informative, very interesting. And then he would get to a point and he would say, and now the rest of the story. The rest of the story. That's right. Now, of course, he meant there was more to be heard. There's more to the story. Not that it was secret or hidden, but sometimes things that we didn't know about from history, and he would give some insight into some important movements in history or humanity, and it was fascinating. Today, we're going to look at the story of rest. See what I did there? It's very clever, and you should be very impressed. I am easily impressed with myself, evidently. (laughs) Today we're going to look at the story of rest. And I was tempted to name this the rest of the story of rest, but that was just way too confusing. But I hope, in general, you know the basic storyline of the Bible. God created us and we fell into sin. God reached into human history and reestablished a relationship through Abraham, through the Israelites. He dwelt among them. God sends his son to die on the cross for us. He died in our, t- our place, took our sin upon himself, gives us his righteousness. He, was died, he died, he was buried, he rose again. And then through that, he shapes this thing called the church, this organization that we're a part of, this organism in history that's living and breathing and demonstrating the gospel, this good news of salvation through Christ. And one day Christ is coming back. He's going to establish his eternal kingdom in a new heavens and a new earth. It's the basic storyline of the Bible. It's in many ways so simple a child can understand it, and yet so deep and profound we can continue to look at it. But in chapter 4 of Hebrews, the author looks at something woven through that story. As Paul Harvey would say, it's kind of the rest of the story. Not that that storyline is incomplete, but there is something sometimes we can miss. And I think it's important and profound. And it is the story of rest. The offer of rest that is woven throughout all of Scripture. God's offer to us to say, you weren't made for this frantic pace of life. You weren't created for these worries weighing down on us constantly. He created us to live in His perfect rest, day in and day out. And so that's what we're going to look at today. What does it mean to live in the rest that God has given us? So we're going to start in chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. And look at God's rest. Let me set this before us. You can follow along. I'm reading out of the NIV. Hebrews chapter 4, 1 through 5. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the good news proclaimed to us just as they did. 
But the message they heard was of no value to them because they did not share the faith of those who believed. Now we who have believed enter that rest. Just as God has said, so I declared an oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. And yet his works have been finished since the creation of the world. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in these words. On the seventh day, God rested from all his works. And again in the passage above, he says, they shall never enter my rest. This is one of the many places in the book of Hebrews where when you read it, your eyes probably glass over just a little bit. And your thoughts kind of swirl, going, what in the world is he talking about? The author of Hebrews is a genius when it comes to interpreting and applying scripture. And he is digging into some very specific, very unique Old Testament passages. And he's putting them together and building an argument, an argument about this rest that is offered to us. I want to pick through this to help us all to understand it, because there is a profound promise here that I want to make sure, and frankly, the author of Hebrews wants to make sure, we don't miss. The concept of rest being offered to us and being offered today, this time period that the author is calling today, was introduced in chapter 3. And last week I, I preached about that and I told you I was holding off kind of digging into that more fully because I wanted to wait until this week. But if you want to hear more about when it was introduced, you can read chapter 3 for yourself, or you can listen to the sermon from last week. But we pick up in this concept where the author is putting together several different texts and using them all to teach us something. The concept of a Sabbath rest occurs at least 12 times in the book of Hebrews. It's a major theme that comes up again and again. So we need to ask, what does it mean? The meaning here is of a resting place, but there's also later on in the passage and elsewhere in Hebrews, there's this combination of a resting place and the rest that happens there. So we'll just deal with them together. What is it? It's a place or or a rest where rest is possible, where effort and striving and struggles cease. Where rest is possible and where effort and striving and struggles cease cease. But in the passage, as in Scripture, there's a lot more to the rest than that. Because in Scripture, our rest and the offer of rest is always tied to the presence of God. The rest exists because God is there. And so when God invites us to rest, he's not saying, hey, just unplug and cool it for a while. Although that's okay from time to time. My wife and I are going on vacation next week. That's, that's good. It's good to go on vacation. Uh, I should say, too, at this point, I will be gone the next two Sundays, so we will be resting. Very excited about that. Pastor Al's going to preach, I think, next week, and then Dan's preaching um, the week after. You'll be in good hands. But that, that sort of rest is good. It's important. But I don't think that's really the main point of rest in Scripture. Rest in Scripture means to dwell in the presence of God and know that He is God and we are not, and He's got this. That's what rest is. There might be a flurry of activity in your life. There might be a lot of things going on. But it's to rest and say God is here and He is at work. That's where the rest comes from. The teaching on rest is all over Scripture. In Genesis 2, right in the creation account, we're introduced very early on with a concept of a day of rest. 
God works for six days creating the world, and on the seventh day, he rests. Now, do you think that it's saying God rested because he was exhausted? Was he just so worn out from all of his creative activity that he had to take a day off? Just couldn't go on for another day more? He needed a break? No. That's not why God rested on the seventh day. He did it for a couple reasons. One, to set an example for us that we need to rest. But two, it introduces this concept of God resting. And later on, this gets picked up throughout Scripture of God inviting us into that rest. Other places, the concept of rest is picked up again. Deuteronomy chapter 12 calls the promised land the place of rest. So here's the Israelites and they're stuck in Egypt and they're enslaved and God comes to them. He says, I'm bringing you to a place and it will be the place where you will rest. A lot of difficulties along the way, but the rest is there and I'm leading you to it. The commands to rest were woven into the Old Testament law. There was a weekly Sabbath day linked with creation. They were to take that day off and rest. That was on Saturdays. There was even, maybe you don't know this, there was a Sabbath year. Once every seven years, they were to take an entire year off. I like that, right? That would be, that would be cool for you. I mean, that would be great for you. But think about that. Now, again, it's so easy to think of this in terms of, man, a break would be great. But think of what taking a year off meant. If you're a farmer and your food comes from the food that you raise and your income comes from the selling of the crops that you raise and God tells you, hey, this year you don't plant a thing. What do you have to have in order to rest for an entire year? You've got to have a lot of faith. A lot of faith. You have to have a lot of faith that God's in control and he knows what he's doing. You see the combination of Rest and the presence and the faithfulness of God linked together. There were also times of special Sabbaths, things like the Day of Atonement, just for instance. There's many others. And when these would come up in the calendar, the Jewish people were to take that day off. And the Day of Atonement was set aside so that they could remember that God is the one who provided a sacrifice. God is the one who's provided a way for their sins to be taken care of. Now, throughout the book of Hebrews, the earthly things like a day of rest, a year of rest, a Sabbath day, these earthly things always point to a spiritual reality. And that's what the author's doing here. This chapter takes that idea of rest from creation and the Exodus and the law, and it says that today, today, God is still offering that concept of rest to us. Then he gives a warning. At the end of verse 1, he says, let us be careful. This is what the NIV has. Let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. I really like the New International uh, Version, but they totally blew this one. Just absolutely blew it. Does anybody have another translation there at the end of verse uh, 1? What does it say? Let us fear. Fear. That doesn't preach well, does it? doesn't sit well. It's literally saying, be afraid of something. Be fearful. The New Living Translation, I think, actually has a really good one here. I think it's something like, let us tremble with fear. Be afraid that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. He 
He's saying this concept of God offering us rest, this this place that we're going to be with Him forever, we should actually be afraid that somebody might miss it. That's how important this is. It's not a, oh well, hope it's okay, no big deal. It's no, this is really, really important. Why? Because it's a message of good news. Look at verse 2. For we also have had the good news proclaimed to us just as they did. Now let's stop for a second. The word good news, we translate or, or express in English somewhere else as gospel. That's what gospel means. That's all it means. It means good news. I like saying it means great news because I just think it makes it sound better. But it means good news. So the word here is gospel. For we also have had the gospel proclaimed to us just as they. Now, who's the they? It's the Israelites in the Old Testament in the Exodus. So think about that for a second. They had some semblance of the good news, a gospel taught to them. What? Where? Moses stood up and said, hey, this guy, Jesus Christ, is going to be born of a virgin and and he's going to die on a cross for our sins and he's going to raise from the dead. No, that never happened. So what is he talking about? Think about what the good news is. God wants to have a relationship with us. God came to Abraham and he said, you're going to be my people and your offspring are going to be my people and I'm going to live among you. He came to Moses and the Israelites says, I will dwell right there among you. The gospel is the good news that God is gracious and merciful to forgive sins. When Moses said he wanted to see the glory of God and and God said, now you can't really handle my glory, but I'll give you just a glimpse. And he passes by and his name is proclaimed. A part of that name was God is gracious and merciful. That's good news. Think about what the law entails. God provides a way for something to take the place of the Israelites in the punishment for their sin. That's good news, isn't it? They can be saved by the grace of God. And then God is leading them to a promised land where he will be with them. That's pretty good news. And as I read those things or say those things, you should be thinking, wow, isn't that what Christ did for us? It's good news. The truth is that salvation has always been through the good news from God to his people. And there's good news all over the Old Testament. We think of it so often as as harsh and law. And yes, that's there. But quite frankly, if we read our New Testament honestly, there's judgment on sin there as well, isn't there? But grace has always been present. And the offer through God's grace to come and rest has always been present present. But then look at what he says. That good news was of no value to them because they did not share in the faith of those who obeyed. The best example I can think of this is when 12 spies were sent in to look at the land of Israel. If you're not familiar with the story, the the first time that the Israelites come to the promised land, they're right there on the border and they send in these 12 guys to check it out. And God had told them, beautiful, wonderful land. I'm going to take care of you there and I will give you the victory. I will accomplish this for you. Twelve guys go in. They spend a while in there. They all come back. Ten of them say, oh, God is right on. This is an amazing land. It's so beautiful and so wonderful, but there's no way. This is not going to work. Let's turn around and go somewhere else. There's no way we can take this land. 
what they were saying was, God can't do it. Two of them went in, also saw the land, said, this is phenomenal. They said, if God said he's going to do it, he's going to do it. Let's go. Two groups. Same message was given to both of them. In many ways, they had the exact same experience of going into the land. One group said no way, and one group said yes. Why? Because one group believed. One group believed and trusted in what God had said. In fact, you can look throughout Scripture, and in many ways, there were always two groups called Israel. Two groups doing the sacrifices, doing the the holy days, doing the uh, reading of the Torah. Two groups participating and looking to the world like one group of Israelites. And yet, the Bible says, some of them were just going through the motions. They didn't actually believe. Some of them did the same things, but in and through all of it was a heart of faith. They trusted in God. Hearing the message of faith, hearing the message of the good news, rather, is never enough. It must be joined with faith. We have to believe. And frankly, I would say that the same is true today. People look at the church and they see our activities and our many, many potlucks and they look at all the activities that we do and and our outreaches and our missions and every church and everybody's invited and everybody's involved in it and they say, oh, it's great, it's your church, it's great. But let's be honest. Sometimes there are people and we love that they gather with us, but if there's no faith in Christ as the means of salvation, there will be and always will be two groups that join together. One that goes through the motions and one that truly believes through faith. So what is this rest that's being offered? Look at verses 3 through 5. The author digs in and goes to Psalm 95, which he introduced in the last chapter. He quotes that in verse 3, So I declared an oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. Then he references Genesis 2, and he says, Hey, I remember another time that God talked about rest. And he puts this all together. And it's amazing what he says. Because basically what he's saying is, when God created the world, he created everything to function perfectly the way he intended it. And he created us to live in his presence perfectly the way he intended it. And then he rested. And there is a really strong indication, and this is what the author of Hebrews is picking up on, that that day of rest was not just one day. It was to be an ongoing, never-ending time of rest, living in the very presence of God forever. And then sin came into the picture. And sin said, I know God said this, but hey, if you do this, it'll be much better. You'll actually get what you want if you do this and you disobey God. The great irony of sin is that it promises rest, fulfillment, whatever it is we're looking for. And yet it drags us away from the very thing we were created for. The actual rest that is promised to us from God. And so the author is picking up on this. And he's saying, look, God rested after creation. He promised the Israelites they would rest when they got to the Holy Land. And yet later on, years later, David writes in the Psalms and says there's still this concept of rest. And he's applying all of this to Christ. And he's saying, in Christ, we now have an opportunity, an invitation into this perfect rest, the thing we were created for. But it is a time-sensitive opportunity. 
And he calls that time today. Look at verses 6 through 8. Therefore, since it still remains for some to enter that rest, and since those who formerly had the good news proclaimed to them did not go in because of their disobedience, God again set a certain day, calling it today. This he did when a long time later he spoke through David, as in the passage already quoted. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. Today. That word is important. Because it means right now, as long as it is called today, there is an opportunity being offered to each one of us. It's an opportunity that is founded or rooted in the fact that God is presently at work, powerfully at work, and he's reaching out to each one of us, whatever situation you're in, and he's saying, today, I am with you. Today, I will give you rest. Today, you can know that all of the struggles of this world are not in vain. Today, you can know what you were created to be. Today, you can accept the offer of salvation through Jesus Christ. It is a great and powerful promise. But it's also a promise with a time limit. When somebody asks you what you're going to do today, there's a concept of roughly 24 hours if you never sleep. Assuming you sleep some, I don't know, what do you end up with, about 10 hours or so, 12 hours? Maybe I sleep too much. There's a limit to it. So if somebody says, hey, what are you going to do today? And you go, I'm going to become a painter. I'm going to go out and I'm going to buy some paints and some brushes and some books. I'm going to take classes and I'm going to practice. And, and eventually I'm going, to, I'm going to be able to paint the Mona Lisa just from scratch. And I'm going to do all that today. No, you're not. There's not enough room. There's not enough time today. Maybe you'll go out and buy the brushes. Maybe you'll get the paint. Maybe you'll buy a book or two or go on YouTube and watch a video. But that's probably as far as you're going to get, right? And then tomorrow you have to work more and tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. Today is a definite time. And the author is tying into this and saying, just as our today is a definite time, so the today that this rest is being offered is a definite time. And it will come to an end. One day, each one of us will breathe our last. And our today will end. One day, Christ will return and our today will end. And between now and then is today. And you have an opportunity to either accept or reject this incredible offer of salvation through Jesus Christ and this promise of rest. And he says, look, Going into the promised land wasn't it. The rest is something much, much more. And so he ties into that in verses 9 through 11. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. Here the word for rest is a Sabbath celebration. I love that. Because the Sabbath celebration, when they celebrated the Sabbath, it wasn't, hey, sit around and do nothing. It wasn't, now's the time for football. It's over. That's not what it was about, okay? It wasn't sitting around doing nothing. And I think too often we think of rest as simply doing nothing. What if rest was doing that thing or those things? That when you do it, you say, this is what I was made for. 
There's just something about it. And it's different for so many people, isn't it? But there's those things that every once in a while you catch a glimpse of. And you say, when I do this, I just feel like there's something about it. This is what I was made to do. And then, you know, you get tired or something breaks and it doesn't work or, or you lose your joy. And there's always something that robs us of the joy of that thing. What if you could do the thing you were created to do unending as an act of worship to God in His very presence, with no hindrances whatsoever, no doubts in your mind, everything works exactly the way that it should be. I can't even begin to imagine. I think of the the story of, or in the movie of Chariots of Fire, when he says, when I run, I feel God's pleasure. There was this sense of, this is what I was made for. This, I believe, begins to get at the concept of an eternal rest. It's not sitting around doing nothing. Man, if you go out and tell people, hey, you accept Jesus Christ and forever you'll get to sit around and do nothing, I'm guessing most people are not going to fall in line for that one. But if you tell them, hey, God has a plan for you. He created you to live in His presence, to worship Him unashamed and unafraid forever and ever. I think that's something people are hurting for, longing for. For those saved by Christ, eternity will be an unending Sabbath celebration. And then we come to verse 10. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. And what's it talking about here? There's two possibilities. One is that works are what we do to earn God's favor. And it's saying you need to stop that because you can't earn God's favor. Now, Let me address this, first of all, by saying that's absolutely what Scripture says. Scripture is very clear on this. We cannot earn God's favor. You can never, ever make yourself good enough for God. That might seem oppressive, but I have found it incredibly freeing. Romans 3.20 says, No one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Galatians 2.16, A person is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Ephesians 2.8-9, It is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. You cannot make yourself good enough for God. And you don't have to. The offer of rest is to say through Jesus Christ we are made righteous. But now we have to look at the passage and say, is that what the author is talking about? Is he saying, quit trying to make yourself righteous? And we can look at other passages and say that's true and that's a good message. But I'm going to suggest that's actually not what he's talking about here. You see, life in between being delivered from Egypt and entering the promised land was tough. They wandered through the wilderness. And every day they woke up. And yes, God was supplying their needs. Yes, he was watching over him. But they still had to get up. They still had to walk. It was difficult. And the author of Hebrews takes this as a metaphor or a signpost pointing to our life today. Our life between the time we accept Christ and the time we end up going to heaven, whether that's Christ coming back or us dying to be with him, it's tough. It's not this free, easy, just living every day, doing whatever we want. It's hard. And frankly, it's work. And I believe what the author is tying into here, as he does so many other places, is 
keep going because the rest is coming. There is a rest of the story. Christ will come back. I know it's hard right now, but keep on going. And what is it that we are to keep on going in? Look at chapter 3, verse 12. Because in chapter 4, he says, let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest. So is he saying, hey, don't work. And then in the next passage saying, but you better work. No, that doesn't make any sense. So look at chapter 3, verse 12. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. Our effort, our work, is the work of holding on to faith in Jesus Christ. And it is hard. It is hard to hold on to work, or to hold on to faith in Christ. It takes a lot of effort because we live in a world that's constantly pulling us away from that, that's constantly saying either you need to do whatever makes you happy or you will never be good enough and you should be ashamed of yourself. And those two messages are blaring in our ears and God comes to us and says, you need to trust me. And so one day, hopefully, we say yes. But then the next day we wake up and go, ah, I don't know. And we walk this path together through this wilderness of our lives right now. And God's saying, keep going, keep going, keep going. And it's hard work to hold on to that faith. And the author of Hebrews is encouraging them to keep going. And the reason he gives here to encourage them or the motivation is the rest is coming. I know it's hard now, but it's coming. Keep on going so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. Here he ties back into the story of the Israelites. And he says, those spies, just for example, ten of them came back and they gave a bad report. And what did the rest of them do? They say, yeah, we're with those guys. We don't think God can do it. And what happened to that generation? They fell away. They perished in the wilderness without ever experiencing the rest of the promised land that God had given them. Because they didn't believe. And the author of Hebrews comes to us today and says, don't be like that. Learn from their example. But if what is important is faith, and if we can fool ourselves and fool others with this outward expression and these outward activities, who is it and what is it that can judge the heart? And that's where he goes next. Look at verses 12 through 13. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing the soul and spirit, joints and marrow, judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Look back at verse 2 of chapter 4 for a second. You see where it says, for we also have had the good news proclaimed to us just as they did, but the message they heard. Do you see that phrase? Circle the word message or whatever your translation has. And then draw an arrow if you can. I heard some of you flip pages, so this will be tough. But draw an arrow from there to verse 12 for the word of God. Because it's the same word in the Greek. It's the same word. And what he's saying is, The message that they heard back then is the same message that is alive and active today. They didn't get it. What about you? Here's your today. Here's your offer of salvation. What are you going to do with it? 
And this message is not some wimpy little thing. It's alive and active. It's sharper than a double-edged sword. And it cuts through the armor, the external things that we put on to say, look how great I am. Look how spiritual I am. Look, I, I took the little cup of juice and I took the little cracker. No, I'm good. I'm in. I dropped some money in the offering plate. I taught Sunday school. I'm really amazing. I gave to the poor. And the Word of God cuts right through all of that. And it looks right into our heart. It says, that's good. Okay, that's great. Good for you. But do you believe? What's your motivation? Are you really trusting in Christ? Or is it something else? God's Word has an ability to cut through all of it. And verse 13 says, nothing is hidden from God. He sees everything. In fact, it uses, uh, this language says that everything is like a naked creature standing helpless before God. Meaning we can't hide. He sees everything. And we don't stand before God and present our case and say, hey, I'm going to tell you a couple really good things about us and we're completely helpless. You know what's fascinating? This is one of those things that always makes kids giggle in Sunday school. Adam and Eve were naked and helpless in the garden. God made them that way. They had no problem with it whatsoever until sin And here the author says, we stand absolutely open and absolutely helpless before God. And he has the power in that moment to crush us. But instead, the message he says is, I'm offering you rest. I know who you are. I know your heart. I know you're helpless. And I am offering to you perfect peace and rest. God made us for rest. We are made to be in His presence forever. And the offer of rest that was mentioned in Genesis, that was given in the Old Testament law and in the Exodus story, it's held out to us today through Jesus Christ, the perfect accomplisher of that rest. It's hard work to believe and to trust. We need each other and we need to encourage each other to hold on to that faith. But the rest is real and it is there and Christ is coming back and we will be with Him forever. So what are you going to do with that promise of rest? It's being offered every time you hear the Gospel. Every time we dig deeper into the Word. Are we going to run around and try to establish and create rest for ourselves and make ourselves at peace? Are we going to trust the One who offers it perfectly? I pray that we could learn from the mistakes of those that have gone before us. I pray that we could be encouraged by the incredible hope of rest in Christ. And I pray that we can encourage one another along the way. Because there is a time limit to this offer. Christ will come back. Things will be put to right. And between now and then, through the power of the Gospel, we have the opportunity to bring somebody from disbelief and disobedience to eternal life through Jesus Christ. In a couple weeks when I come back, we're going to pick up in Hebrews 4.14. Because Hebrews 4.13 ends up with us being naked and helpless before God, completely unable to help ourselves. And it raises the question, what are we going to do? What help is there? And 4.14 comes in, in the following verses, and it says, we have a great high priest a great mediator between us and God who stands before us in our place, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, these are...
terms and ideas that we often don't think of or or think in this way. And so it's hard. It's almost like learning a foreign language sometimes. But Father, may we understand what rest is in You. And in many ways, there's so many people here today that I think are longing for that rest. Maybe they wouldn't use that word. Maybe they wouldn't express it in the same way. But there's always this concept, something's not right. Something's out of whack. And God, we spend so much energy trying to put it right in our own ways, and it doesn't work. May we hear the gospel, this offer of rest in you and through your Son, Jesus Christ. May we not only accept that truth, may we live that truth in in our day-to-day actions as we work, living every day, holding on to this truth, as we encourage one another, as we share the gospel with our world. May we be a living, breathing demonstration of that powerful truth in us. And when people see us, when they see the church, May they see rest, trusting in you and in your will and your power that's at work in us. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.